I wanted to thank our worship team, and um, I think they're coming back in now, but what an awesome time of worship. I thank you, Sophie, for leading us and, and the rest of the team. I have to tell you that in worship, man, I just, I, I think that when we begin to sing to God in the realities of who he is, sometimes it touches our emotions. Any, any of you with me? And, uh, and you get a little weepy sometimes, you know? And I was thinking to myself, man, I don't want to get weepy today. Pablo brought all of his friends, you know what I mean? <laughs> I can't get weepy in front of them. And so I just want you guys to know I wrote a Harley Davidson once. So I am a, a true man. But then I started thinking about it, and I was having a conversation with Pablo before, guys, and he was getting a little weepy, too, when he was talking about Jesus. So I know that we're in good shape. So and happy, happy New Year, everybody. Welcome to 2024. Can you believe it? And I can't think of a better way for us to bring in the new year than to be together in worship. And um, something special uh, is for us today in God's word for sure. But this is a, a special day for us as a community. Um, in, in 1984, the first Sunday after the new year, uh, a group of people got together at a rented banquet hall in Fullerton called Griswold's Hotel. And, uh, and they wondered if people would show up to their church service. And the place got flooded with people. First Sunday, they said, we got to go to two services. And a church was born. It was the beginning of this fellowship, then Zion Christian Center. Now we know it as Bridge Community Church. So that was 40 years ago. 40 years ago. And we're going we're gonna to celebrate it well. We're, we're going to celebrate the 40-year the anniversary next Sunday on the 14th. And as we do that, we're going to have the, the privilege of hearing from our founding pastor's wife, Phyllis. And uh, Phyllis is going to come. And, and uh, yeah, you can clap for Phyllis. <laughs> well, I always say Phyllis is one of the most popular girls in school, right? Everybody <laughs> wants to hang out with Phyllis. Um, but really, in, as, as I was thinking about this 40-year anniversary, what, what really was in my heart was to understand the, the vision and to understand what God was up to when he began this place, that do you know that churches don't just pop up because it was a good idea, right? I mean, it is a good idea to, to continue spreading the gospel and gathering people together, but a church that, that stays, um, a church that remains for 40 years is planted in the heart of God. God has a vision, in other words, and, and he hands it to somebody, and they have the choice to say yes to it or no to it. And Phyllis and Ruthann and Millie and Chet and many of you, Peggy, who are founding, um, the founders of this church, I just want to thank you for your yes. Thank you for your yes to the vision that God put on your heart. Ruthann and... and and Phyllis, uh, your husbands led us so well. They led us so well. We're here today. I, I like to say it this way, and I'm, I, I don't tire in saying it, that we're standing on the shoulder of giants. That they led us stably and consistently, steady hands through many different seasons, but constantly gave us the word of God. And, um, and so I'm deeply grateful. And I was thinking about, um, you know, just kind of trying to imagine. Sometimes they say that you can understand if, if your church is... Um, I don't know, effective is if you could imagine it not being here and would it make a difference? Does that make sense? So if you take a step back and go, okay, this wasn't the Bridge Community Church, Zion was never founded, not in the city of Orange, um, would it have made a difference? And, um, and I think like I'm, I'm seeing different ones shaking their head. I'm thinking of all the, the weddings that happened here, my own, dedicating um, my children here. I think of times weeping here at the altar and people speaking, and this is just one person, right? Speaking into my life and and, um, and many of you have, whether you're, you're new to our church family or you've been here for many years, um, God has done something tremendous in our lives together. And that's something to thank God for his faithfulness in. And so we want to celebrate this and remember it well. And so we're going to do that next week with um, hearing some original vision and the, the circumstances that were going around the, the starting of the church. And then at night, we're going to come back together and we're going to have a night of worship where we just praise and honor God and his faithfulness for what he's doing in our lives in this moment and, and just trust and believe him for the next 40 years. Amen? Amen. Amen. Yeah. Um, this morning, I want to get back into John chapter 8. And so if you have your Bibles with you, that's where we'll be in, in John chapter 8. And 
grateful for the message that Pastor Andy brought to us last week from um, John chapter 7. And I think we all connected with, with the things that he said. I, I personally connected with the, the thought of our discipleship being a slow, ongoing, daily process, right? That we serve Jesus day by day, and it's a slow, obedient work of the Spirit. Um, I think there was another part that I, I liked as well. I liked all of it, but that connected with me. This idea of a self-serving bias. Do you remember when Andy talked about that? The self-serving bias is the understanding that the, how we view the world. Like if, if something good happened, then it was who, who gets credit? We get credit because we did something awesome. But if we failed in a certain way, who gets the blame? Somebody else, right? The person who messed it up, the weather, if it's a sporting event, the ref, whatever else. And so when we're looking at the Gospel of John, we're understanding that people are seeing Jesus through their own biases. They're seeing him through, um, through their own version of being the heroes of the story and them holding on to um, what they believe is the, the standard of truth. And Jesus doesn't fit in their box. And how many of you know that Jesus blasts boxes away every time you try to put one on him? And so we'll see again that Jesus does that. And um, it, it, this sort of, I don't know, inaccurate view of who Jesus is. They're, they're, they're certain that they think they know who he is, but it's not matching what he's doing. In other words, religious elite, the Pharisees, those who are in charge are, are saying, hey, you know, be careful. We got to get rid of this guy. We got to arrest him and move him out of the way. But the everyday person is like, wait, what? I'm not going to arrest this guy. He's amazing. And let's look at the, the scripture to bring us back into the context. John chapter 7 and verse 45, it starts there. This is where the, the, the priests or the, the, the religious leaders send like temple guards. They say, hey, just go arrest him. And when the officers came to the um, chief priests who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, listen to this. No one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered him. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? In him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. I love that, and this is important to the, where we're going to go in chapter 8. I love that Nicodemus comes back into the story. Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees who was very curious and wanted to understand who Jesus was and, and wasn't making the, the biased prejudgments, right? He wasn't looking at it necessarily through his lenses. He was trying to get the whole truth. And Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, who was also one of them, said to him, does not our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Do you remember this stuff from last week? Are you awake this morning? Is everybody good? Okay, good. Do you remember that this statement that they make with such confidence and such boldness and such sarcasm and such, like, elitism? What, are you from Galilee too? Don't you know that no prophet comes from Galilee? It's not true. They say it with such confidence, but we know that prophets did come from Galilee. We know that, that Jonah, for example, came from Galilee. And so it made me just be, and Andy brought that point out, but it made me think of the fact that the world that we live in now speaks lies to us with confidence, and we just go, oh, yeah, oh, wait, no, I'm the dumb one, right? You could speak a sarcastic lie. You could speak a, a curse or something that is completely untrue. But if you say it with utmost confidence, everybody in the room is like, wait, wait, what? And we begin to doubt what we know is true. Is anybody else living in this world that, that understands these same things? And so this is where we, um, we find ourselves in the story, that they've got their facts wrong. Their preconceived ideas are not correct. And they can't see Jesus for who he is. What we know about Jesus and what we know about the Gospel of John and, and, uh, and why this Gospel is so awesome to study and why it's so important for us to grasp is that Jesus makes claims about himself and those claims are also defended by the things that he does and what others say about him. And so Jesus has said already, we're just barely into this book. It's going to be a while, guys. I think we're going to be okay. We're going to probably land maybe on Easter next year. So, so, uh, so, so Jesus has already said these and this is just a, a snapshot. This is what he's already said about himself. 
and as John said about him and, and shown to be true, the first thing that he says is, and this is just review from the overall context of John, is that he is the word that has become flesh, that he was from the beginning, that he was God who came to earth in human form in flesh and blood. The word became flesh and moved into the neighborhood and dwelt among us. It says that, just smacks us with that right in the beginning. And secondly, John, his cousin, says, look, it's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, connecting him to a prophecy that says the Messiah will come as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you remember this stuff? Third, Jesus himself says to the woman at the well who for cultural purposes, shouldn't have been talking to her in the first place, but just loves to blow those boxes up. And so he talks to her, converses with her, answers her questions, and then with perfect clarity says, I am the Messiah. So she's questioning, we know the Messiah is coming, and and the one you're talking to is he. Jesus self-proclaimed that he is the Messiah. Things get a little dicey after he does a a miracle at the pool. Remember, he helps the man become whole by healing him miraculously. And that just, because it's the Sabbath, upsets everyone, right? You can't do that kind of stuff on the Sabbath. And Jesus then shows and declares that he's equal with the Father, which really upsets everyone, turns the tide on the whole tone of the book and the way that the story is going. Jesus then declares after multiplying the bread and the fish that he's the bread of life. He's the one that really gives you true nourishment. He's what you're looking for. Because then the people begin to follow after him and they're asking like, how do, I, how do we get more of that bread? Jesus calls them out and says, that's not the bread that you want. You want bread that will nourish you so that you're never hungry again. The same way he says to the woman at the well, I've got water so you'll never have to thirst again. And he declares what? That out of him will flow springs of living water the eternal quenching of the things that you're really thirsty for. And so today, sandwiched between these, these declarations of him uh, being the one who has living water for us, and then he's going to say that he's the light of the world. If you really want to see things accurately, because clearly the community around him, the religious leaders around him, can only see things through dark lenses, and they've got it wrong. Jesus says, if you want to see clearly through me, you'll see that I am the light of the world, right? And so sandwiched between that is this really great story. And this is the story of the woman who's caught in the act of adultery. And, and so this is what we're going to look at in John chapter 8. Is everybody with me this morning? Yes. All right. So let's do it. Now, if you um, look at John chapter 8 in your Bibles, actually it's kind of this awkward chapter break from um, chapter 7, 53 into 8, 1. And there's a a bracketed statement that's there that almost reads like a disclaimer. It's like scary when you see it in the Bible. It's like, beware, beware. What does it say as you look in your Bibles? I think it's probably even if we put it up on the screen. It says, beware, this story doesn't appear in the oldest manuscripts or texts. Do you see that in your Bible? All right. I don't know what that's all about. So let's get into the story. No, (laughs) I'm just kidding. I I was sitting here when Andy was doing the sermon last week, and I saw that pop up in his last verse. I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to have to cover that. Thanks a lot, Andy. (laughs) Um, What does this mean? There is something, and I'm not going to go deep into this, but I I don't want to just teach the Bible and then, like, look over stuff, and you walk away going, what does that mean? Um, It almost reads like this isn't really the Bible, but we just put it in here anyways. That could read like that if you're just reading it at face value. There is um, uh, an academic effort called textual criticism, right? And that means that scholars get together and they're trying to, pro, um, to really keep the integrity of Scripture, the most accurate forms, the most accurate um, translations of Scripture, right? And so, as you know, the Bible that we read today in English um, didn't start out in English. I know that most of us think that uh, we're the only language group in the world, and, and most of us who live in the state, we're the only state in this world. Do you ever notice that about California? We get every state wrong. Like, where are you from? Oh, were you back in Iowa? No, Idaho. Oh, yeah, anything other than California is just another state, okay? So, so, <laughs> so, so I'm saying that, that this language is, the original language of the Bible comes from original manuscripts that are found through archaeological study, right? And so you, you find that these authoritative um, um, versions of Scripture. Now, those versions of Scripture were handwritten and passed on through time, right? They didn't have a, they couldn't scan it off their phone or, you know, throw it into a copy machine or whatever else, but they needed to handwrite it. 
And so scribes would handwrite, and they, they were no joke. It wasn't like they were just like watching TV and writing, you know, and just like, just like for side work getting paid 10 bucks an hour to just like write stuff. They, they were devoted, and they, were, they, were, they knew the holiness of their duty to write scripture. But even still, they were human. And so from time to time, there would be errors in what they had written. And so the errors would often be grammatical or sometimes a story would pop up that another story that wasn't in that you know, story or whatever else. And so textual, criti- textual criticism brings all those things together and tries to find the common ground. Does that make sense? If you don't care, there's probably videos for this you could watch later. In fact, um, we have a video that we put in today's sermon. Um, Tim Mackey from the Bible Project did a great long video on how we got the Bible, canonization, and so forth. It's right here in, um, if you're watching on YouTube. So anyways, uh, so, so anyways, you can check that out on your own. But here's the bottom line. Over, the, over time, new studies in archaeology will find older documents that don't contain the same stories that an earlier one did. This is the case for this story. So John chapter 8 doesn't exist in the earliest documents, Right? It exists in some later ones. And so to be integrous in the scripture, these um, disclaimers are, are put there. Now, what, do you, what, what you need to know, I think, what the takeaway is, is that even though it might not be in this um, earliest discovery of scripture, but it's in another one, it doesn't tell us anything different about Jesus. It reinforces who he is. It fits. It fits, right? And so the question isn't whether or not it belongs in the Bible. The honest question is, where is it supposed to go in the Bible? And that's the story that, that, um, off, that scholars wrestle with as they bring Scripture together, is where do they put it? Some scholars would say it belongs in John 24. Another one would say, no, it belongs right here in John 8. Another one would say, no, I think it goes in Luke, right? Because they're bringing together all these manuscripts. So for today, I want to say this. It belongs in the Bible. It's an amazing story. It's not in any way heretical. It doesn't tell us anything new, like, oh, that's nowhere else in the Bible. It reinforces the character of Jesus, and I'm so glad it's in the Bible. And I think it fits perfectly for us as we come into a new year. So can we go on now? Can we, have we covered that disclaimer? Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you very much. Okay, so as you look in your Bible now, it's okay to read this. <laughs> in 753... Jesus has, has ended a very emotional and busy season, um, a, a difficult time as we know. He's speaking into things in the midst of this really busy feast called the Feast of Tabernacles. He's teaching at the temple. And he's debating, and, and Pharisees are coming at him, and they're trying to arrest him, but they can't do it because it's not his time. So imagine you in that situation. It's not like you just, it's a business as usual, it's busy time. And when the day is done and when the time is done and the feast is done, we see something interesting in Scripture. In 731, they, each, uh, they went each to his own house, right? This is the people that Jesus was teaching and the Pharisees that he was uh, teaching to. They each went to their own house. But listen to what Jesus did. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. If we didn't take the time to do it, we could just easily skip over that one sentence and go, oh, that's interesting, it's very interesting, and it's very applicable to us, that at the end of the day, some go to their own homes to find comfort, get a good meal, get a good night's sleep, maybe study up on how they could debate Jesus a little bit better and really take him down next time. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, so where does he go? He goes to his home. Where is his home? Where the presence of God is. And when he goes to his home in prayer, the Mount of Olives is a really significant place for Jesus. You can read in the Bible other times where he goes there. Do you, do you remember any other times? He, he goes there even in, in the hour of, um, of before his, his, his ultimate mission is fulfilled and saying to the Father, if, if this cup could pass, let it pass. But not my will, yours be done. It's his place of prayer. It overlooks the city of Jerusalem. It's a beautiful place. How many of you have like a beautiful place that's like your altar place with God? If you don't have it, I would encourage you, like, find a place, you know, a, a, a place that's unique to you, that makes sense to you, where you can just be still and know that he's God. And that's what Jesus did. He comes, and after a busy time, he fellowships with the Father. It's a great way to look at a new year, amen? If you look at, at Luke chapter 22 and verse 39, you can turn there if you want, or it'll be up on the screen. It gives sort of a, I don't know, a backup to Jesus' habits, 
It wasn't just a one-time thing that, that Jesus would go to the Mount of Olives to pray, but we know that he often withdrew to recharge his batteries. It says that he came out and he went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. And that'd just be a great verse for you to meditate on. Like, what are your customs? Are you going to those places with Jesus? Are you, as his disciples, following Jesus into those places of prayer and solitude where your, your batteries can be recharged, where you can stay on focus and on task with the mission that he's called you to? So the next verse, back into John 8, verse 2. It says, early in the morning, like Aaron Axtell taught us about today, early in the morning, maybe even before 6 a.m., he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down, and he taught them. The, the, the thing that I want to look at is two things, and, and, and a couple of just like words that when you're studying the scripture, to really take the time and observe. It's early in the morning, and he came again. That word again is really important. How many of you are in situations in your life where it's just like, you know God's called you to something, it's maybe not working out the way that, that you thought it would, it's not fun anymore, it's maybe adversarial at times, things are difficult, but you learn to show up. You come again. You don't just come again out of stubbornness, but you come again through the power of the Spirit because you've spent time with the Father, because you know that this is what God has for you. That's to be commended. You know, I think faithfulness is to be commended far above talent and ability. Sometimes we, we, we look for those that are talented, like, man, that guy speaks really good or sings really good or she's amazing at whatever the thing is, the marketable church skill, you know? But probably what we should be looking at are these attributes that Jesus had, faithfulness. He showed up. Jesus showed up again to the temple, the very place that was not welcoming to him, the very place where difficulty was. And so Jesus shows up to the temple and the people came to him. And here's something really interesting. And, and throughout this uh, chapter 8, I want us to observe Jesus' posture. Okay, It says that Jesus comes to the temple again, and he sat down and he taught them. Jesus teaches out of the refreshment of being at the Mount of Olives. I don't know what that was. <laughs> I was like, do we need to go? <laughs> um, he sits down. Now... For us, what we're used to in our settings when the Bible is preached, um, usually the person that's teaching stands up, right? The pulpit is a place where, you know, the word of God is brought from. You stand up in honor of scripture. You all get to sit down, but I, get, I have to stand up the whole time. Now, now in, um, in rabbinical tradition, so the rabbi, when he taught, he would sit down. When he read scripture, declared God's word, he would stand up. So when Jesus goes into the, the synagogue or the temple to, to read out of the Isaiah scroll, he stands up and he reads. But when he teaches, he sits down. It's interesting. It's almost like that posture is a, like a, a, a sort of nonverbal cue. Like, okay, he's sitting down. What is he going to say? And so Jesus sits down. And what would be in the common tradition is Jesus would sit, and then others who want to learn from that rabbi would sit at that rabbi's feet, right? It's like almost like you feel the dust of, of that's near this guy, and you want to hear everything that he has to say. And so this is what Jesus does. He sits down, and he teaches them. Verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery and placing her in, the, in, in, placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? Are you familiar with this story? There's so much to this story. You know, I, I was tempted as I was studying to study for mileage. That means like how, how many scriptures can I get through this Sunday so we can move this gospel of John onward? But I've got to tell you, as I sat in this story, I couldn't get out of it. The fact that Jesus is brought, like the, this woman is brought, okay, so she's caught in adultery. There's, there's some observations here. She's not just um, caught in, in, the, in, 
knowing that she's an adulterous woman, she's caught in the act. Can you imagine the shame that accompanies that, right? She's caught in something. And the verb tense of her being caught in the act of adultery, it would kind of indicate, most some scholars would say, it would kind of indicate that it just wasn't like a one-time thing, that she was probably known as an adulterous woman, right? So it was like this ongoing adultery that was occurring. They bring Jesus and they, they ask him, what are we supposed to do? This is what the law of Moses says. What do you say? Now, this is supposed to be a test for Jesus, right? And they're trying in their own way. And it even says in scripture that they're trying to test him, that they're, they're trying in their own way to test Jesus. They're wanting to bring shame upon him, possibly even legal ramifications. And I'll explain that in just a minute. But look in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 22, because this illustrates how the religious elite were trying to use God's word against God's son. And here's what it says in Deuteronomy 22, 22. If a man is found lying with his wife, excuse me, with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, you shall purge the evil from Israel. That's why people love to read the Old Testament and go, Christians are crazy, you know. It's without really understanding the full counsel of Scripture, right? So this is law given to a nation of how to conduct themselves under God's authority. It says in verse 6 of John, back to our John 8, that they say these things to test Jesus that they might have some charge to bring against him. So now they're bringing some truth, like, hey, Someone's caught in the act of adultery. They're supposed to get killed. What do you say? Here's, the, um, here's how it kind of shakes out. One, if, if this test, if Jesus goes, yep, um, Moses did say that. I'm going to be faithful to Moses' law. Where, where's the stone? Here, let's, let's take care of it. Let's execute this woman. This is a capital crime, capital punishment. Jesus is then on the hook with the Roman, the Roman government because the Romans have taken the authority away from the, the Jews to be able to execute capital punishment. They can no longer do it. All, everything has to come through Rome. So if Jesus does it, then now he's in trouble with Rome, right? If he doesn't do it, then what does that say about Jesus? Oh, Jesus um, has gone rogue. He doesn't really follow the ways of God. He, you know, you, can you imagine what, what Jesus, what they were saying about him on the internet? You could just look it up, all the clickbait about Jesus, you know? So they try to get him in this quandary, this catch-22. The, the, the interesting thing as I studied this a little bit, though, is that even though that law is, is 100% clear, and as you read it, you go, oh, man, that seems harsh, there was a whole process to that, okay? And I think we need to understand it to understand the story. If someone was accused of adultery, that doesn't mean that they were killed, if someone was accused of it, or even if it was like it looked like it, it was the, the appearance of evil, most commentators that I read said this was a very, very rare occurrence. And if it did happen, it was usually a setup. This is why. Because in order to prosecute this crime, you had to have witnesses. And generally speaking, these types of sins are done in secret. The type, and this, is not, and this is not to get seedy or shady on, on a Sunday morning, but the type of witnesses that you had to have, it couldn't be just like, hey, I was there, I saw him go in at a certain time and he left at a certain time. And we all know what they were doing. You know, it couldn't be that kind of witness. It had to be two witnesses that saw what happened and had to have separately give the exact same account. And if and only if that occurred, then they would be guilty and they would both be executed. Okay, you tracking with me? So now they're like, okay, we got to fast track this, Jesus. If you're this awesome rabbi, what are we going to do? Are we going to take care of business or not? They think they've got Jesus in an impossible scenario. But what does Jesus do? And I think we really need to understand this. Jesus listens, and by the way, in your imagination, can you imagine this woman who has been caught in the act of adultery being dragged into a group of men, and there she is, can you imagine the shame and the guilt and the horror of that moment? So what does Jesus do? Remember, the rabbi sat down when he spoke, and he stood up when, when he gave God's word or read scripture. This gives a different word in the Greek language. It says that Jesus bent down, right? Jesus bent down. All oh, this crazy's happening. 
Jesus does one of these. Um, Luke Axtell does it really good, the way he squats. But anyways, Jesus just does, like, it, it's like the stoop like this. And, and he just starts doing this. I think I paused long enough for it to be awkward. Jesus paused probably way longer. He pauses long enough for them to be like bothered. I think Jesus is showing us the art of shutting up, of just being silent in a moment where there's so much chaos. The art, of, the, the, the posture of stooping down was a posture of humility too. Like this stoop, like if you're gonna be like, hey, you know, if someone's confrontational, what, what posture do you take? This one, right? Come on. It, I fight all the time. I'm a street fighter. So, so the, the, that's how I know. But, but, the, but, but this posture, there's like, there's nothing aggressive about that, right? This posture is just like this, right? And as Jesus is doing that, we don't know for sure, and we'll get into like some of the speculations on what he's actually doing. But one thing seems to be clear. He's de-escalating a super proud and super loud and super awkward situation. He's just de-escalating it through silence and distraction. And why does he do that? He does that for her. He does that for her. He does that because of all the attention that's going her way, he meets her and he stoops down to where she's at, drawing the attention away from all this and just stoops down and he's with her. Does that make sense? I can't remember the movie, but I remember I watched this movie one time years ago and it was this like kid that did all, you know, he did his best to go up and face his fear to sing a song in front of the whole school and, you know, and he's up there and he's like blowing it. He's missing the song and it's going off key and um, this person who was in his life, I don't even remember who it was, maybe it was like a rom-com or something, maybe it was like the guy who was trying to win the mom of the kid, I don't remember, it was something like that, but, but he comes up and then just does a distraction, starts singing a song like just so embarrassing in front of everyone, right, so he bails the kid out from looking stupid on stage by looking stupid himself, right, Jesus wasn't trying to look stupid, it wasn't like that, but it's a similar thing where Jesus was bending down to her and he was connecting with her. He was taking the attention off of her for a moment and he was quieting down. It says that in Matthew 5, verse 9, this tone is so important. It says, blessed are the peacemakers for they will be called sons of God. The big question is, what did he write? The one clear answer to that question from the Bible is we don't know. We don't know. I like some of the theories, though. I'll tell you the one I like the most, just personally, just for no other reason than I like it. But this is a theory. This isn't my favorite one, but um, this is one I hear often, that Jesus stooped down and he wrote the, the sins of the accusers. That one's kind of cool, right? Like justice. Yeah, you do bad stuff, too. You're a jerk, you know? Like, <laughs> I just, I, I don't know how that one would work because you would... Could, was he writing upside down so they couldn't see? Like, was the crowd, how do you, how do you write, like, how long would that take? I don't know. Maybe that's what he did. That one sounds cool, but I don't know. He just doodled. Jesus just doodled. Honestly, that's my favorite one. <laughs> because that just seems like Jesus, right? Like, he just, just quietly, like, as awkwardly, as long as he wanted. And just like, just as, as like, awkwardly long enough, then he went, like, way longer than that. And as he was doodling, he was distracting, or uh, he was creating a diversion, or he was giving some time to break from the chaos to allow people to really think about what was going on. I know I, I'm guilty of this when I get excited about communicating stuff. I just, I just want to say it all. But I love when I hear communicators that just say something, and then they let it settle, and then they say something else, and they let it settle. This was one of those moments to let the craziness of what was happening settle. Another thing that some scholars say is that Jesus wrote the passage in Exodus 23.1 about being an unrighteous witness. Very possible. Because clearly what was going on in this story is they bring this adulterous woman. We know it wasn't because they had some 
uh, claim to righteousness. They just wanted to put Jesus in and tie him up like a pretzel. They didn't care about her or righteousness. The other thing that they said, possibly the names of the accusers. This one was interesting um, because of some of the things you could do with the Greek language and the way that it talks about the writing is it said he could have been writing his judgment or what he pronounced as what this is what I think before he actually said it. That's a possibility. But what we do see in scripture is this next verse. It says that he quietly wrote as they continued to ask him. I can only imagine the different personalities. Like, what is he doing? Why is he not answering? You know, like the, what's happening in the crowd. And then there's always that one guy like, what is it? What is it? What is it? What do you think? What do you think? You know, just like going. Like, that helps somehow. Like, I'm, you know, you're trying to get to your point, and that person's just so aggressive. Like, I picture something like that. But Jesus is just like, dude, do it all day long. I'm just down here doodling while you're being a jerk. Like, just that. And so he quietly wrote as they continue to ask him. There's so many things that we can apply from this, and I'm just gonna take a break here because we can apply so much about being on the self-righteous side, but I think one of the huge goals in scripture, and as we read it and learn it together, we wanna become more like Jesus. And in becoming more like Jesus, we need to use less words, amen? There's a proverb that I love, and I've spoken about this before, probably because it convicts my own heart, but in Proverbs 19, 10, 19, this is in the New King James. I don't know what version we'll put up on the screen, but I like the way the New King James writes it when it says, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. Think about that for a second. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. If you just don't talk, even people are gonna think you're smart. <laughs> You know, it's like a bonus. I remember one time we were, I, I might have told the story before, but I remember one time when I lived in Hawaii, we would go out and do street evangelism, and I was with this guy, and he wanted to debate everyone and prove everything, and it just doesn't really work with locals, and this one local guy was just there, super spiritual guy, you know, and, and he was talking about the wind and the waves, and this guy was like debating him on a different level, and I just sat back there the whole time and just kind of listened, and I wasn't trying to be wise, but at one point, the, the big local guy just goes, bro, you need to shut up. And then, and then he goes, I'll listen to this guy because he doesn't talk. <laughs> so, so even like, even that perception of some kind of wisdom just by not using a lot of words. So then um, we read on in, in 8 and verse 7. And so as they continued to ask him, what does it say that Jesus did? He stood up, right? So he went from a stoop to a stand up. He stood up and said, let him who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. We use this often, right, in, in, in trying to show people to not be judgmental and whatever else, but there might be a different dimension to what he was actually saying because as we understand the story, it was probably a setup. It was probably they had planted someone. They knew that she, this woman was committing adultery. It was probably her reputation. They probably put people somewhere to be able to see it and to be able to report on it so that they had her um, with the two witnesses and so the whole thing was unrighteous. And so this is probably a, a reword. I got this out of a commentary if you want to put the slide up on the screen. That he who is without sin throw the first stone at her. It says in, in Jewish law, witnesses to capital crime began the stoning. Jesus really said, we may execute her, but we must do it correctly. One of the witnesses must begin her execution. So who among you is the one who witnessed the crime? and only brought me, the woman, and not the man. Who designated the humiliation of this poor woman? Interesting, huh? I love Jesus. <laughs> just like, they're, they're, they're just thinking like, oh, he's so lame, he doesn't know what to do, so he's just doodling on the ground, and he's just like, boom, you want to do this? Let's do it. And then in verse 8, he drops that truth bomb. And then in verse 8, once more he bent down and he wrote on the ground. The art of being quiet and letting things settle. Letting the awkwardness do what awkwardness does. Verse 9 says, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. One by one. I like what I read that somebody pointed out that the older ones went first. Why do you think that is? 
I think it's true that the, the more life that you get under your belt, the more that you realize how harsh you were when you were younger and you thought you knew everything. When you, when you look judgmentally maybe on a situation or you're emphatic about something, I think the older that you get, the more that's not, this isn't a saying that you compromise in your righteousness or the truth of God's word. And I think, in fact, it's probably the other way, but it's your compassion that you have for people who are struggling becomes much different. The people that I admire most are, are and I'm getting there, I'm getting older, but are much older than me. I admire them. I admire, it's like the goal and the dream is to be the wise, sweet old man that smiles a lot. And I know, I've known some of them. Um, I, don't, I see David and Connie back there, and, and I, I talk about your dad a lot, Connie, because he was that in my life, of, a model of that. And I remember in, in this idea of being judgmental, one of the things he taught me in pastoring, he had said, and he had said it so humbly, because I, I used to have lunch with him, and I would bring him, like, all the big stuff. Like, hey, this happened. Can you believe it? What do I do? And he, and, and he would smile, and he would say, God's got a plan for that, you know? God's got a plan for that. And he would never give an answer. You should do this. It wasn't strategy meetings. But this is something really profound that he said. He said, hey, one, one time he said, hey, unless you can weep over the person who's sinning, you probably shouldn't correct them. Unless you can weep over the person who's sinning, you probably shouldn't correct them. What was he saying? He's saying something I think similar to what Jesus was saying. Like, hey, before you get all self-righteous about all the wrong that's going on, what people are doing, it is wrong. But what about the person? He stooped down with the person. What about the person? Can you weep over their condition? Can you weep over their situation? And if you can, then you can, you can correct them with a heart of compassion. I think there's something there for us. Verse 10 so Jesus had then stooped down, and now he has a chance to stand up. And he stood up, and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? That word condemned is an interesting word in the Greek language because that particular word condemned isn't that they brought a charge to her, that the word indicates that they brought a charge and the verdict, and they snapped the gavel on guilty. That's what that word says. So where are the ones who knew that you were wrong and already knew that you were going to get killed? Where are they? And she says, no one, Lord. And then Jesus says these words, neither do I condemn you. It's a different word. He says, neither do I pass my judgment on you. Go now and sin no more. I think what's really important about this story and hopefully what really applies to us is that Jesus is not soft on sin. It wasn't like a cover-up. It wasn't like, hey, that, hey, just between me and you, I got your back. That never happened. It wasn't that. Hey, they're all gone now. I bailed you out. Pew, high five. I'm for you. I'm not a jerk. I, you know. It wasn't that at all. Jesus says, okay, I'm doing what I came to do. This whole Gospel of John is about teaching us to judge rightly, teaching us to see how Jesus, who he is by what he claims and what he does. And what did he say earlier to Nicodemus, who's, early in, who's in this story right around? I, if you want to really follow me, you've got to be born again. And, and, and God so loves this world and this idea of him being the savior of our sins. Are you tracking with me? So if you begin to put all this together... This simple application comes to us in, in 2024. It's just Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, but go and sin no more. Jesus forgives her. He points out how he, he, he covers her, but he also releases her into a holy life. He doesn't, again, he doesn't, he's, not, he's not soft on the sin. I had a conversation with somebody. It was a good call. They asked me, they said, um, years ago, they said, hey, how come you don't talk about sin? I said, I think I do. If I, if I don't, I'm not, I'm not doing it intentionally. And honestly, they're not here so I can talk about them. They moved to another state. But I'm just kidding. I don't know if they did or didn't. I'm just I'm kidding. That's a bad joke. But, but I think that in their situation, they had been reading a lot, and they had been nervous about pastors who don't talk about sin, right? And, I, and, and so there's like certain buzzwords that come up. And so if you, I'd said something like, hey, if you made a bad choice in this area, and I think I said bad choices a few times. And so they kind of confronted me and said, hey, you can't say bad choices. You can call sin sin. 
And I'm like, yes, you're, and I mean it. It was, a, it was a legit call. But it was also a call of someone who was on the edge of their seat thinking that, you know, that I might be going in a bad direction or like teaching heresy or whatever else. The Jesus that we read about is perfectly compassionate. He stoops down and he's perfectly clear about what separates one from the Father and the wages of that sin, which is death. And so he calls it what it is. But he also releases them into freedom. And so here, here's the simple application. She wasn't just forgiven and like, man, I've made it. She was forgiven and then released into a holy life to change and to be completely different, much like the woman at the well in John chapter 4. And so the big question for you and for me in 2024, is there a sin in your life that needs to be no more? Are there things in our lives that need to be no more? If the word of God isn't, isn't pointing at certain areas that um, we need to change and then maybe we're not hearing it as clearly as we need to, to hear it. This isn't like a, a call like, hey, I know some of you are messing up. We are all messing up. We have all sinned and fallen short of God's glory. But as we sit here with Jesus, we realize he's the one that stoops down with us, that understands us, that wants to cover our shame and then release us into freedom. The problem with habitual sin is it keeps you in a cycle of shame and you think it's just you and your sin and nobody else knows about it, but it's eating you up inside. And Jesus wants to free you. And as you come into a new year, whatever that might be, whether it's addictive behavior or, or just like, man, I can't stop gossiping or, man, my negativity or whatever it might be, submitting it to the one who stoops down with you and realize that he covers you and wants to free you and release you into sinning no more in that particular area. I want to invite the worship team to come back as we wrap up our time together this morning. And I'm just going to bring these last points together for us and give you a chance to to sit in this story just a little bit. The things that hit me the most out of John chapter 8 was that Jesus goes down to the low places where we often sit in our shame because of our sin. That is a lonely, terrible place to live. And I said it before that it's the place where the devil lies to us so deeply that we think we have to like, keep God out of it and that somehow we get better and clean ourselves up so that we can come to him. But, but really the good news of the gospel is that we get to invite him right into the shame and he doesn't find us like, yeah, I told you, he stoops down with us. Secondly, he meets us here um, not to excuse or justify our sin, but to free us from the shame and the bondage um, this self-justification is a terrible trap. What I mean by self-justification is in those areas where we know that there's like a habitual sin or there's this thing that we're convicted of. It's the oftentimes we justify doing it because we say, man, I've had a terrible week. I deserve to this. Life is short. I deserve this. Because of the temporal hit that it gives us, the temporal pleasure moment that it gives us, I deserve to do that because of the things that have happened to me. And that cycle, as real as that is in our lives, that cycle can be broken through the power of the Spirit, that Jesus came to break that cycle. And that the end of that cycle comes freedom and self-control. Jesus calls out sin, but not in the same way the Pharisees did. He stoops down and meets us in our shame, but he stands up to pronounce forgiveness and freedom over us through the power of the Spirit. Isn't that good news? And I got to just say this in all honesty, this isn't good news for the person that's next to you. This is good news for you. This isn't just good news for your like wicked neighbor who you say, they should have heard this. This is good news for you. This is good news for the secret places of your heart that he wants to bring in absolute freedom. Freedom. The progression of Jesus' posture, he stands to, excuse me, he sits to teach in the, in the temple. He bends down to respond to the Pharisees with no words and be with the woman. He, he stands up to answer them authoritatively with, he is the word. He bends down to write again with no words, to redirect and identify with the woman. And then Jesus stands up again. And this last one, when he stands up, he stands up to restore. And so I, I want to invite you to stand up with us here on the stage, to stand together I want to invite you into receiving all that you need for G from Jesus, the, the power to overcome sin, the, the power to 
um, see sinners in a different light. Maybe to see the ones that you're disgusted with. And rightfully so, to a certain degree, because of the offense that they bring through their sin to you directly, to your nation, or to your particular group. But to take that and to submit it to the Holy Spirit and to ask God to give you his heart so that you might weep over the one who's trapped into a cycle of sin, especially the one who doesn't even know they're sinning. To be able to weep over that enough to be able to stoop down and speak into it. To be able to be peacemakers, those who can quiet the noise that's happening around by sitting down and letting the awkward go and writing a little bit and allowing the work of the Spirit to happen in people's minds and in their hearts. The boldness to be able to call something sin, but also to pronounce the opportunity for freedom through Christ. And so this is a great way, I think, to enter into the new year. And I want to invite them to lead us into a song of worship. And as they do, let's just allow God's word to settle over us as we consider some of the things that are there. to where we are. It's just what's exactly what you did in coming to this earth. God, I thank you for the declaration that we so often quote and know to be true that you so love the world that you gave your only son. Whoever believes in him won't perish. The perishing that comes through the consequence of that sin. The perishing that is so devastating to even conceptualize, to think of 
eternal separation from you, God, in a, in a place that you only intended for the devil and his angels. The horrors of that sometimes grip us to the point where we don't even want to think about it. But in this slice of time, may we understand the realities of your desire to spend eternity with us in heaven and that none would perish in hell. So God, I ask you that today you would reawaken in us a desire to live righteously before you through the power of the Spirit. You would put within us a heart that's like yours, Jesus, for those that are struggling, for those that are caught in the act habitually of whatever the sin is, that our finger of accusation wouldn't be harsh and cruel, but it would be loving and kind. And it'd be motivated by your mission that you stayed pure and true to, your mission to rescue and to save people out of the cycles of sin. Lord, help us to be with people, not above them, pointing down towards them. God, help us in this new year to walk that out as a church and help us in our individual lives where there are areas that in the, in the secret places of our heart where we're stuck. God, I pray that you would bring freedom. Lord, just as you pronounce freedom over this woman to go and sin no more, God, may we take that as a word from the Lord to go and sin no more. And I just want to say in a practical way, if there is a struggle, don't be stuck in the silence of shame that you will find when you are able to confess what you're stuck with, whether to, with like a trusted person in the Lord, not just any one person, but find someone that you trust. You're going to see that there's freedom on the end of that uh, confession, that you no longer have to do those things hidden anymore. But God wants to free you. And so I speak that over you in this 2024. Don't waste any more time in habitual sin, but call it what it is. Come to Jesus with it, and he wants to bring you freedom. 2024, you get to sin no more. That's, that's the, in those particular areas, to sin no more. I didn't mean that as some sort of um, like saying for a bumper sticker. I felt lame when it came out, but maybe it'll stick with you. That in this year to come, when you find that habitual area, I'm not doing that anymore. Be honest with the Lord and be honest with, with his people. Amen? Amen. God bless you. Have an awesome week.